Hey there, and welcome back to Legend of the Glorio Heroes, your premier uh, recap and reaction podcast for the legendary 1988 science fiction OVA. Uh, we're here on episode 25. 25 episodes. It's been it's been hell of a run, and I regret to inform everyone that uh, we don't intend on stopping here. Uh, we're uh, you know this. Yep. Well, we're just gonna stop at episode uh, seventy two, and when we're done. Yeah. Like... No. No. I'm afraid we couldn't do that, though. <laughs> though you know, let's not not on such a high note. No, this show's only getting better somehow. So uh, we just have to keep going. Uh, as always, I'm your host G, and with me, you know, you know, running with me like my eternal engine, the clockwork masterpiece himself, my co-host Eero. Yep, but just uh, still ticking. Exactly, like clockwork, baby. Like clockwork. That's a that's a shadow run reference for all of you. <laughs> <Yes>. uh, <laughs> for all you uh, cool kids in the know. But uh, yeah, we got a we got a, a a hell of a trio of episodes this week to talk about. And uh, as much as I would like to uh, run right into that, uh, we'd like to uh, we'd like to address uh, some uh, misunderstandings from last uh, the last podcast. Play the corrections music. Yes, yes. If if we had a uh, if we had a corrections uh, segment, uh, that would be you know implying we had enough commenters for that, or that we were ever wrong enough to, for for that. <laughs> um, you know, we would have a theme song playing here. But uh, yes, yes. So uh, we have read some of the comments uh, related to uh, our last podcast, and uh, uh, we're just going to say here, uh, mea culpa. We uh, we uh, have to admit we kind of misunderstood the translation of uh, of the scene yes. in Legend of the Galactic Heroes. Iro, if you'd like to explain. So the narrator explains that Yang Wen Li made t- two miscalculations when considering the situation before retaking Ezer loan. And uh, we assumed that somehow his not realizing the FPA would put up resistance would cause Yang's upcoming expedition to be one that had no chance of success. Yes. When what was being said was that if Yang had known the FPA would put up resistance, he would have, in attempting to help them, gone into a battle with no chance of success. Yes. So we we kind of misinterpreted that as that because of these two miscalculations, like that Yang's fate was sealed from here on out. When what they were actually trying to say is that had he known about Bukok's fleet, he probably would have sallied forth in a you know in an ultimately futile attempt to uh, to uh, to help Bukok. Now I still think him not reading the Earth Call data will come into play. Oh later. yes, yes, uh, I, I am adamant that that will uh, have some long, uh, long-standing consequences. You know, I think uh, despite the uh, seemingly ultimate destruction of the Earth Cult, I think it would be foolish to assume that uh, their influence is out of play. But that's that is speculation for a different podcast because <laughs> yes. we're here to talk about cool shit. Uh, cool shit and sad shit, which can really yeah. encapsulate these three episodes in a nutshell. And I think uh, because of just how much, just how much fun and you know bittersweet tragedy occurs in these three episodes, we really should just you know get right into it. Yeah, covering episode seventy, the prodigal son's return, and episodes seventy-one and seventy-two, which are the Battle of Mar Adetta Star Zone, parts one and two. Yes. 
So uh, we have episode 70 kicking off with the new year. It is year two of the Lohengrom <laughs> dynasty. The new right calendar yes. year two. Yeah. Year 800 in the, the UC. Yes, it's, it's kind of wild because like I feel like we were watching a scene of Reinhardt celebrating a New Year's party only like a dozen episodes ago, but I feel like it's probably longer than oh, that. Wasn't that his coronation party? The what? No, no, no. I, I could have sworn he definitely had a New Year's party for like something else, but that was a year that might have been a year ago in story, my dude. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yes, yes. Like uh, I'm trying right. to remember. Okay, I'm yes. trying to remember how long ago that was, episode wise. But uh, I mean, he was crowned in like June, yeah. right? So it must have been season two. Yeah. So just a little bit before he was coronated. But uh, yeah, just yo, know, hey, it's crazy how much has happened in an in an in universe year of Legend of the Galactic Heroes. You yeah. know, uh, Reinhard promises everybody, hey, we're gonna have a great New Year's party after we conquer Heineson. Yeah. Um, everybody's in high spirits. Uh, meanwhile, the uh, you know, the FPA also, uh, you know, despite the different calendar, are also throwing yeah. a, a, a New Year's party. <laughs> Uh, put ribbons and streamers and tinsel on the flagship on the bridge of the Shiva. Yes. Uh, it's very good. Um, we, everybody is just pouring drinks. Uh, they're just uh, really pouring them out for uh, right. for uh, for Julian and Mashango here. Just they got a whole fucking tray of just bottles. Now it's not like Israel's going anywhere. Yeah, yeah. We we find out that uh, we find out that Poplin, uh, in addition to his many skills such as. Um, you know, ace pilot and uh, toxin identifier. Uh, we can also throw life affairs counselor to the list of Poplin's myriad talents. Right. Um, it says the young people all come to him for advice. Yes. Including, uh, including Catros von Kreuzer. Yes. Uh, apparently it's not even that like, like it would be one thing if Poplin was like just giving like unsolicited advice to Karen, but the fact that it's specifically phrased that Karen approached Poplin for advice, <laughs> like it yeah. implies on some level that like in universe people like trust people and respect <laughs> Poplin as a like wellspring of experience, which I think is very funny. <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, Poplin tells us uh, tells Julian that uh, Karen. Uh, asked him for advice on the whole uh, Shen Cop dealio, you know. Right. I think he says that uh, she's not actually unhappy. She just thinks she's unhappy with the situation. Yes, yes. And he, told, he said he told her to go talk to Shen Cop and demand 15 years worth of pocket money. <laughs> yes. For being a missing dad. Yes. which is uh, some... So, you know, look, Pop... <laughs> Apparently, in universe, everybody thinks Poplin's got some good advice. So you know what? Who am I to uh, yes. who am I to judge? Yeah. Also, want to highlight a tiny scene here where uh, when they're pouring drinks, and even Mich- Louis Mashengo comes up and is like, "Hey, I'm trying to drink too," and just starts slamming it back. Yes, yes. Mashengo, give a fuck. He is just, uh, yeah, he is just pounding those drinks back. Um, I mean, look. With, with the whole Iserloan thing going on, I can understand uh-huh. it. I feel like, you know, by the end of this episode, we had a much different tone. But at the start of this episode, there's still a very large degree of uncertainty to the success of this operation, you know? Yeah. And, I'm just glad Mashengo has been a regular yes. uh, character since he was introduced. Because yes. I kind of assumed at the time that he would show up like twice and then disappear. Yeah. I mean, Mashengo doesn't get you know, Mashengo you know? doesn't get as many lines as I would like, but I've always appreciated his uh, his rock Every solid says, uh, presence. Yeah. 
A man cannot escape his own fate. Indeed. So uh, with all the the celebrations taken care of, we right. finally go to uh, to Iserlone, which is being it's time to launch the recapture operation. Yes, and we find that Iserlone, uh, as we had forgotten, thankfully the show reminded us, is uh, stationed by uh, or is being led. Uh, the garrison is being led by uh, Admiral Lutz. Yes, Cornelius Lutz yes. has been there since like the beginning. Yeah, Lutz, He's in the first yes, opening. Lutz is one of the OGs. However, in all fairness, he is one of the less memorable OGs. I am pretty sure Lutz is explicitly one of the dudes in our season one finale podcast where we tried to name everybody in the opening sequence. I'm pretty sure Lutz is one of the dudes we definitively could not identify. I could never, I could never tell Lutz and Valen apart. Yes, um, I kind of. So now, Wallen has like a robo arm yes, or some shit. It's, uh, it was a necessity to help us remember which is which. But uh, yes, so. So you say now, now we have defined characteristics. Wallen's the guy who's who's lost an arm to the Earth cult, and Lutz is the guy who got bamboozled at Ezerlone. Yes, Lutz got. Yes, we will get into that. So Lutz is stationed at Ezerlone. He is tasked with making sure that. Uh, you know, nobody uh, nobody takes this shit because, uh, spoilers, Ezerlone and the Ezerlone Corridor, very important in uh, this corner of the galaxy. Yes. Um, we find out that uh, Ezerlone is also pretty well defended, that there are uh, one million troops stationed at Ezerlone, you know, which mm-hmm. uh, basically outnumbers uh, Young's entire fleet by like a factor of like 10 to 20. Um, yeah. But, I'm not uh, sure how many ships that is, but yeah. But uh, but yes. So uh, we, however, we find out that uh, uh, Lutz Ezerlone uh, has received a uh, a missive, a a missive, an encoded missive oh, from Reinhardt. All right. Yeah. Advance. Tell, send your garrison to help with the offensive. Yes. Uh, and of course, Lutz is like, well, if Reinhardt says so, we should. However. Then Lutz receives a second. Oh, so he, he, he's smart. He, he asks if this order was encoded or if it was like not encoded. Yes. Because obviously if it's not encoded, then it's a false well, message. Well, yes, it could be from anybody. But because it's encoded, right. uh, there is all a right. reason for Order him. all troops to prepare to launch. Yes. However, then he receives a second message, also from Reinhard, ordering Lutz to uh, stay on guard at Ezerlone for... Uh, for uh, there may mm. be uh, for for uh, there may be uh, Yang Wen Li employs fraudulent tricks. Yes, explicitly stating that Yang Wen Li is known to employ devious tricks uh, to confuse and confound uh, the enemy. Yeah, and you gotta watch out for Alliance and Fazani sympathizers yes. inside these alone. Yes. Uh, so uh, in case you haven't realized, uh, somebody is sowing discord in the Ezerlone ranks, and. Uh, uh, Lutz orders a crackdown. Uh, they find a few cases of corruption, and Lutz feels satisfied having successfully uh, having successfully caught uh, you know Yang Wen Li's uh-huh. trick. And uh, I'm glad we I'm glad we know to stay because that was, <laughs> we almost fell for it, man. Yes. But then Lutz receives a few more missives <laughs> from Reinhardt. Um, contradicting themselves culminating in one with uh, Reinhard demanding why Lutz has not followed his orders to leave <laughs> Ezerlone and that uh he shall be punished if he does not uh, obey this order right and uh it's very finally like yeah he gets multiple orders and uh, a narrator tells us only the last one was actually from Reinhard yes we find out that uh 
Yang the Swindler has been up to his old tricks. Uh, he has yeah. been sending contra- Turns out that uh, Yang hasn't just been sending uh, one set of false messages. He has been sending both sets of false messages to uh, Lutz to uh, to mm-hmm. uh, confuse and confound him. You get some more. You get a quick another shot of Bagdashu sending these messages, giving another thumbs up at the camera. Yes, yes. Bagdashu looks so happy uh, fooling people. Um, <laughs> this might actually be Bagdashu's first on-screen display of effective espionage. Um, <laughs> so I'm glad it only took 70 episodes for Bagdashu to finally remind us why uh, he is on yeah. uh, Yang's payroll. This, this is his specialty, yes, right? Yes, yes. Uh, uh, fooling people, apparently. Which you could have fooled me on that, considering how poorly he fooled Yong all those episodes uh, ago. But uh, against the likes of the Empire, turns out Bogdash is pretty good. I'm beginning to think that actually maybe Bogdash isn't quite a, uh, a, a, a a traditional espionage expert, and perhaps he more specializes in, like, cyber espionage because every instance of Bogdashu like doing successful espionage has been like through computers right. whether it's like hacking the FPA's mainframe or the decker. yes yes Bogdashu would be the decker of the party and uh we are uh we are we are seeing uh, and we cut to right. after this we cut to a scene of Reinhardt who is very angry how dare let's ignore my orders. Yes, Reinhardt is Although, getting played yeah. unbelievably hard by Young. Um, you have Strite being like, look, it might be Young and Lee's trickery again. Yes, yes, and uh, Strite kind of has the right of it, and Reinhardt thinks about it, but because of... Uh, it's like, there's no tactical advantage for Young and Lee to get either alone. Yes, yes, they're, they're, they, 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 they remain quite satisfied that, oh... This must be some part of Yang's trick related to Bukok's fleet, because there is no way Yang could possibly take Ezer alone with his, like, diminutive fleet, even if he did, you know, bamboozle right. Lutz for a while. So let's focus on, like, you know... So, like, it's fine if Lutz stays at Ezer alone, yeah. because that way, if it is Yang trickery, Yang can't can't just recapture Ezer alone if the whole fleet's still inside. Yes, yes, it's it's very good. And uh, we find out that, at, in, you know, just brief scene that we find out that Bukok uh, somehow managed to get 20,000 ships together. So not insignificant, right. but also that's uh, that's not a whole lot compared to like the Empire's, you know, probably 100k strong that's, uh, fleet. The, like very first battle in the, the, the series yes. was like Reinhardt's 20,000 fleet yes. versus the FPA's like 60,000 fleet. Yes, which... Well, we all know how that went, but again, you know, it takes a real genius to pull off those kind of odds. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the thing I really like about this whole scene, like as much as I was like, like I was gleeful, I was cackling during this oh, yeah. entire we, scene. We were having a lot of like, fun. It's so good because it's such, like this is like really effective. Es- like there is like, like bad espionage is bad lies. Okay, espionage is good lies. Great espionage is both good and bad lies interspersed with just tiny glimmers of truth that are like just like plausible enough to like completely throw somebody to throw off. someone off. And that's what happens to Lutz here. Like I can't really blame Lutz for like what he does in this situation because like based on like the information that he has available to him, like Lutz is taking the logical actions here. Uh, Lutz decides that regardless of which missive is real, uh, the point is that Yang is attempting to do something to Ezerlo, likely capture it. Right. Like so, Lutz on the co- 
on the basic, like, logical level, he has already figured out what Yang is trying to do. And his strategy right. is to kind of pull a Reinhardt at Vermilion, where he is going to pretend to follow Reinhardt's orders and uh, uh, leave Ezer alone and uh, maintain just a far enough distance to uh, encourage the FPA to try and capture um, uh, uh, Ezer alone and then, you know, you know, basically uh, uh, catch Yang's fleet in between right. his fleet and the Thor hammer. Basically, make make Yang's fleet think that they are leaving Iserlone. Yes, when actually they're kind of just going to hang out. It's, it's it's a solid strategy. Like you know, they they keep saying that Lutz is like a it's the, like most reasonable yes, action to yes. take. Like knowing that, <laughs> considering the situation, yes. uh, like yeah, and like that's the thing. Like they they repeatedly state in this episode and even the next episode that Lutz is like a solid fairly intelligent commander and i think that's the right. thing i appreciate about this episode yeah like the thing i appreciate about this episode is like young is not like just schooling on some idiot like schooling on some idiot would be satisfying but what makes this really satisfying is just how thoroughly young Wenli outplays people who are like close to his mental and strategic equal like he's not like mm-hmm. you know this he ain't playing on easy mode like this he is like he is beating on people who are like genuinely like like competent in their own right. And uh, before we get into the really fun stuff, because I'm not really going to get an opportunity to talk about this, I, I want to talk about espionage a little bit more, Eero, if you would indulge me, because oh, yeah. uh, Please. Uh, for those unaware, well, I, I studied history quite extensively in college. Uh, but however, uh, history is a very large and like general subject, and it's impossible to really like study everything. So. Uh, my specialties uh, in college when I was studying history were uh, the Civil War, uh, modern China from 1911 to the 1980s, and perhaps my favorite, um, the history of espionage. <laughs> um, and okay, then. So I want to talk a little bit here about the like why I think Yang Wenli is... Yang Wenli's espionage, the, the espionage he is using here is truly fantastic. And to do that, I want to illustrate with a real life example of maybe one of my favorite spies in in, in history, uh, Juan Puyol Garcia, uh, or as better known by his code name Garbo. Uh, okay. Juan Puyol Garcia was a a Spanish uh, anti fascist. Uh, during uh, the 1930s and 40s, who after his experience in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, basically hated the fuck out of fascists. And he hated them so much that uh, when he realized uh, through his like analysis of like the geopolitical situation that Germany would inevitably go to war with, uh, with Britain and France, decided that uh, he wanted to become a spy for the British. So he applied, and the British refused him. So Juan Puyol Garcia did the next best thing. He applied to be a spy for the Germans. So the Germans, mm-hmm. uh, there's uh, the Nazi Nazi Germany was famous for many things. You know their unbridled cruelty, and uh, you know there there are many like there are many uh, ill ill timed and ill thought uh, technological innovations. Um, right. But uh, one thing right. that maybe less famous for is uh, how awful their espionage uh, core was compared to the Allies. In fact, uh, many historians would in fact argue that 
while Nazi Germany lost for many reasons, perhaps one of the greatest reasons they lost the war was because they were so bad at espionage and counterintelligence. And Juan Puyol Garcia was the linchpin of this. Uh, Upon being uh, accepted and employed as a spy for uh, Nazi Germany, uh, he began to set up an extremely elaborate ring, uh, an extremely elaborate false espionage ring of fictional individuals who he claimed to the to the Germans were uh, part of his extremely expense, extensive spy network installed all throughout Western Europe. Look, guys, I got connections. Pablo Garcia was but one man. He convinced the Germans that he commanded a network of dozens of spies all throughout Britain. You know, ranging from uh, Agent Moonbeam to an to an agent, a field agent known simply as the Welsh fascist. All of these were made up. All of these were a fiction. All a fiction. So, Juan Puyol Garcia was not even living in Britain at the time. He was <laughs> still in Spain, All right. using British like train schedules and like almanacs to craft this fictional landscape of Britain that he had convinced the Germans was the result of his extremely dedicated and competent spy network. So effective at, 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 uh, at, uh, bamboozling the Germans at this, that eventually even Britain's own domestic counter espionage group, MI5 eventually started quote unquote, catching members of this spy ring eventually culminating in uh, confronting Garcia himself to which finally Garcia once again offered his services to the British. This time they accepted. Uh, the, uh-huh. the grand, the grand uh, culmination of uh, Garcia's efforts as agent Garbo was uh, finally with um, the D-Day landings. In fact, operation overboard. This is sort of the uh, like, because they had a bunch of like fake D days, right? Yes, yes. At various locations. Yes, Garbo was in fact one of the major individuals responsible for this operation, uh, because he had spent all this time um, ingratiating himself to the German spy network. Like they truly believed him. He was considered one of their most trusted agents. And how this all ties to Legend of the Galactic Heroes is because Garcia understood what truly good espionage is, because. Every time Garcia reported information to the Germans, like mostly trash knowledge, the thing that he always did was include just enough useful snippets of legitimate information that only somebody like that that only somebody like deep in the ranks of the British High Command could ever know. Like the information he had would have like like he he would give snippets of information that were extremely knowledgeable. Like you cannot deny, like oh, this is really useful. But he would always release them in ways that they were either like too late to be useful to be acted upon, or like interspersed hmm. with enough falsitudes that like verifying all of the information at the same time. By the time they had verified the actual true piece of information, it would be too late to do anything with it because there was so much other like you know, trash information, basically, like, like just chaff. And, like, this culminated in the D-Day landings where Garbo sent, uh, Garbo sent information because the, the whole, whole point of Operation Overlord was to convince the Germans 
that the D-Day landings would occur at a location known as the Straits of Dover rather than the beaches of Normandy. Mm-hmm. And here's where like Garbo like approaches like the brilliance of like one of the greatest spies who ever lived. Uh, once Operation D-Day was in effect, basically once the operation like basically once the British had started setting out in their sh- setting off in their ships, as in like there was no way to reverse course. He sent the he sent the information to the Germans that he said, "Oh shit! Actually, I just realized at the last second the landings are going to happen at Normandy Beach." But they were timed in such a way that by the time the Germans actually got the message, the Allies would already be on the beach. Right, but but it makes him look more trusted. Yes, because he gave them like demonstrably true information. Yes, he gave them demonstrably true information that was just quote unquote tragically just hours too late. You know, ah, it's 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 brilliant. Versus... It's it's truly brilliant. And and here's a thing where like here's a funny like little anecdote within this anecdote that makes it even more interesting. Originally, Garo was only going to tell them the landings were going to happen at Normandy Beach. But when he sent, when he we relayed the message to uh, his German operator, uh, the operator was out at the time and did not <laughs> receive the message. <laughs> so Garbo seizing upon this, realizing that not only was like the original plan was already to send the information too late, but because the German operator on the other end had apparently stepped out for a smoke or something, was not even there. He added more right. to the story. He included right, detailed right. plans of the Allies' formations at Normandy oh, right. because now he buttered up even more. He buttered up even more because he was oh, they're already too late. Now, whenever this fucker gets back, they're gonna be extra too late. So I might as well just like grease the information a little bit more. And mm-hmm. uh, for his efforts, um, Juan Puyol Garcia is uh, the only known uh, case in World War Two of an individual receiving uh, medals of valor from uh, both sides of the war. <laughs> and uh, yes, yes, Garbo's story is fascinating. It is a, uh, and I I, probably, I went a little bit longer here than usual. I'm very passionate about Garbo's story. It's one of my favorite, it's one of my favorite things, uh, favorite stories from history, period. And I love that <laughs> Legend of the Guetic Heroes finally gave me a chance to talk about it because like, this is why Young is an especially good like tactician, or, or or I don't even want to necessarily call him a spy, but like why he has such a good like handle of espionage. Like it would be one thing if he gave one set of false information to uh, uh, to Lutz, but not only did he give two sets of false information, he also gave true information to Lutz, and like that is the hallmark of a truly legendary spy. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, I just want to get that all out here now because the rest of this episode is just fucking gratuitous violence. <laughs> so right. to get back uh, here, Lutz, Lutz launches the garrison fleet yes. to lure in the Yang fleet, and he sees them coming in. He's like, "Ha ha, got him! Yes. Shoot the Thor hammer!" But turns out Yang's present is still there yes. at Ezer Lone, and it was a backdoor into the computers. Yes. And so uh, the uh, Thor hammer has been disabled from right, within. All of the all of all of their gun platforms are not responding. Yes, none of their automated defenses are working. Like everything's locked out. Yes, and I, so 
now we have a few hours to uh, capture the control rooms before the loot fleet yes. returns. And this 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 boardy fleet is, you know, as you might guess, led by none other than Shen Cop and the Rosen Ritter. But uh, interestingly enough, we got some new faces along for the ride. Uh, Julian, yeah, Mashengo, maybe. and even Poplin are all there, decked out in power armor and, and, and axes yeah. ready to go. I like that they have color-coded armor, just them, so that like we can tell them apart in uh-huh. the fights. Um, right. And so they crash the ship straight into like a hangar. <laughs> yeah, and they just start pouring out and just... You know, up, fools. There's not much to describe here. Just every time, you know, just... Think of every other time the Rose and Ritter have ever massacred a fucking right. pile of Empire troops. Well, it's There's the same a... thing here, except with some Pop- great little yeah. extras. Poplin's like, man, ever, like even since Earth, I've had to start fighting on the ground. This sucks. Yes, we find out we can add um, moderately capable CQC combatant to Poplin's uh, list of talents here. Poplin, right. uh... Uh, um, he's not as good well. as Julian or or Shinkop or Mashengo. No, nah, but, but he can he can throw good. down. He can throw. He might not uh he might not be able to throw a pillar like Mashengo <laughs> just hurls a stone pillar down a hallway, <laughs> takes out like five guys. It's so good. Just like <laughs> like you know, like we we love Legend of the Galactic Heroes for many reasons. You know, some of those reasons are it's very frank, like, analysis and discussions of politics and power structures. We love Legend of the Galactic Heroes because of its compelling characters and their very, like, nuanced and grounded motivations and ideologies. But also, also sometimes we love Legend of the Galactic Heroes because you can have a man like Louis Mashengo just in the middle of this, like, melee fight between dudes in power armor with crossbows and axes, and then here's just Louis Mashego picking up a stone pillar, a broken stone pillar, by the way. So the implication is either that this stone, like, they don't show, either the stone pillar is a piece of rubble that, like, fell off during the fighting, or my preferred, like, interpretation, Louis Mashego is so powerful that he ripped a stone <laughs> pillar from its foundation and <laughs> and tossed it like a fucking tomahawk at... <laughs> At these, at these poor uh, Empire soldiers, <laughs> and right, you know, it's just the battle just falls you apart see them from like, there. Like, right, yeah, just, you can see the. We get a good scene of their morale instantly wavering once they hear that's the Rosen Ritter. Yes, yes. So Poplin like almost, all, Poplin almost gets got right after this scene, right? Uh, but gets saved by Shenkop, who Shenkop being Shenkop is like you know, tut tut tut, you know. You're not quite there yet, Poplin. And uh uh-huh. and then of course, like dying dude sees the fucking Rosen Ritter emblem on their armor and like <laughs> Oh god, no. no. Everybody no. instantly <laughs> knows they're fucked. Let me remind you, this garrison is supposed to be a million strong. I don't know that's not all I mean, a lot of guys, lost, but lost, lost Yeah, yeah, but just uh so good. Um, yeah, and so they get they make it to a control room. Yes, and yes. So just put in the second half of the override. Yes, and, and uh, fire the Thor hammer at the loot fleet. Yes. So not only have they disabled the Thor hammer, they have turned it to their own uses, and uh, without even needing to take the control room, we should mention they take like some random like fucking server farm, like server farm four right, or something. A side room. Yeah. yeah which. 
I will. I just want to mention. I don't think I f- nailed it exactly, but I'm pretty sure I'm the person in the season two finale podcast who suspected that Yang's uh, Yang's present might be some kind of like computer virus. Yeah, uh, I didn't think it would be straight up just like a, a backdoor like you know whatever, but like you know. I, I like that that is what it ended up being because I think we all initially assumed, oh, is it going to be like a bomb or something? But like, please, you think Yang Wen Lee is that basic? <laughs> uh-huh. But, um... Well, yeah, and so they, uh... Yeah. Take control of these alone. Yes. Uh, we should mention that uh, Lutz's fleet is decimated, but Lutz himself does manage to escape. Yeah. Um, and, uh... They mentioned, however, that, uh... The, the, the final taking to Israel alone would take another, like, 24 hours. Um... Which to I, wipe up, yeah, to like wipe up the remnants. I do like that they meant like they brought this up because like it, it leads a little bit more credence to the plan because like I like this idea that like even if We're everything on a very strict time limit, right? Like even if everything had gone right, like even as good as the Rose and Ritter are, there is no way they would have captured the control room within five hours. Like they don't get to the control room until like a full twenty four hours after the operation has started, like what this whole operation for was for was to capture like just that like server room, which like kind of plays well into this whole idea of like this plan, like depending on the level of your understanding of this plan, like I think there's a lot of like, like plausible reasons why Lutz wasn't really sweating until, until a Thor hammer was activated. Right. Because like, I think there's, there's a stage for Lutz where even after the user, after like, you know, even after the Rose Ritter have managed to like land on Ezerloan, there's probably still a part of Lutz is like, well, okay, it's not the end of the world. We'll still get back there. We're I mean, that was the original plan. That was his original plan was to lure them in and then overwhelm them with his numbers. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, the original plan was to get him with the Thor hammer. And then the Thor hammer didn't work. Well, I still got the numbers advantage. Like there's no way they can take the control room that quickly. So it's like, I, I like that. Like there are multiple levels to this plan beyond just like, the initial bamboozle like this is like some like triple layered bamboozling like on an unprecedented on on, on an unprecedented level for this show yeah but, and uh, so uh they uh <clears throat> take his alone negotiate to like allow allow the remnants to leave and uh he's alone's back in our Back in our hands. Yes. Back in the FBA control. And under and under Yang control, yes, rather. In, in under a year, uh <laughs> Yang's <laughs> fleet has once again taken back Ezerlone. It's uh yep. it's good to be home, you know. It's uh Indeed. I like Prodigal this episode. Return. Yeah, I I like this episode a lot just because like I feel like it's been a while since we've had a big we've had a big Yang win. Like, yeah. like as much as I loved all the shenanigans on Heineson, like a lot of that felt like, you know, Yang on, like, the back step, you know, a lot of Yang in a corner, which, you know, look, I love Yang in a corner, at least to some great moments, but, like, yeah. I think it's moments like these that I truly live for, when it's, like, like when when, when Yang Wenli goes on the active, like, when he becomes an active participant in a conflict, because that is when you get your most interesting plans, your most interesting, you know, your most interesting moments. And uh, again, like, I love this show for how smart it is, but I'm also glad this show also knows how to just, like, cut loose every have, now and then. Have some axe murder. Yes, just some, some pillar, pillar throwing. Some extremely gratuitous axe murder. <laughs> but uh, with all all that fun yeah. in games, we now must move on to uh, episode 71, part one yes. 
of the Battle of the Mar Adetta Star System. Yep. Uh, so Reinhardt's getting ready for battle, and uh, communications are blocked with Ezerlone and the Black Lancers. And uh, we have intelligence that Bukok has a fleet of about twenty thousand. And so all of the uh, all of the admirals are like, "Yes, let us fight." Yes, uh, I would like to say that it's mostly the younger guys like Grill Palzer right. and Napstein who are like, "Yeah, like, like, let's, just, let's, yeah. Just, let's just kill this old man. We got this." And I do like that as guys like Mittermeier and Roythal who are like, "No, eh. like a, we have the numbers. We have the B. We have the time. C, like, don't fucking underestimate a guy like Bukok. Any mm-hmm. any military man who can live long enough to get that old." Is like either has either been coasting behind the scenes his whole life, or in case like Bucock, is a legitimate motherfucker to contend with. Right. So yeah, and so they find out that uh, Lion's forces are collecting at the Maradis Star Zone. Yes, where uh, which is basically a bunch of asteroids around an unstable star. Yes. It That's makes, shooting shooting solar wind all over the yeah, place. It's basically making it almost impossible to like reliably navigate in. Like the only the only ways to navigate it are like a few like select like corridors of space that are slightly more open. So mm. like, you know, again, like Lutz, you know, props to Bucock. I think that, you know, there's a lot a lot can be said about you know the situation itself that Bucock is in, but he is making the best of his available resources. He has set himself up well here. This is a good place for him to have a fight. And I think Reinhard acknowledges yeah. this. Um, I think this is another part here where, where once again, Hilda is kind of like, you know, we don't have to fight Bukok. Like we could just, you know, mm-hmm. we could just capture Heidison again. This is the only force the FPA has left. Like it's hard yeah. to do much even with one army, but you know, Reinhardt is basically like, Nah, ah, like the ch- direct challenge, it would be discourteous. Yes, to, uh, yes, it would be discourteous to battle to- myself. Yes, so in the name of honor, Reinhardt is taking the fight. Uh, he assigns his admirals. Um, we have uh, Mittermeier, Eisenach, Mueller, Fahrenheit, Napstein, and Grillpalzer have been mm-hmm. uh, assigned to this battle. Uh, Royenthal is apparently staying by uh, uh, Royenthal is staying by Reinhardt's side for this one. Yeah. Um, we get this great scene uh, before the battle. Redfall and Mittermeier are, you know, drinking uh-huh. and chatting like the oh, dumbasses these they two. are. I do like these I two. Love them. I love them so much because they're just so fucking how extra they are. Redfall is just... Redfall is waxing poetic here like his uh-huh. life depends on it. With an old lion and a young lion in desire, desire battle. Yes. You know, he says that you know, history always wants blood. Like, <laughs> but how much <laughs> blood until it's satisfied? Yeah. And Mittermeier actually gets a little bit angry at Roythal. He's like, hey, don't talk like that. And Roythal's like, sorry, I guess I'm not cut out to be a philosopher. And it's just like... <laughs> That's better for Mecklinger than me. Yeah, they're just so extra. Yes, there's that line, they're like, not like Mecklinger, that nerd. <laughs> just, uh, uh, it's, so, it's so extra, I love it. Um, and then yeah. their, their, their conversation I do like because it kind of it speaks to this idea of like both sides are kind of like is it just human nature that we are kind of enthralled by the idea of like this one big definitive battle 
Like there's something poetic, mm-hmm. there's something narrative about it, you know, like the idea of like, oh, let's just have yeah. one big battle that will like speak to like the finality of this conflict. And I kind of like this because like on one hand, Hilda is correct that like we don't technically have to like beat Bukok to win this war. I do like that they speak to this idea that actually there are some valid strategic reasons for why Reinhardt wants to do it this way. Like mm-hmm. they don't explicitly state it here. So I'm kind of. I'm kind of projecting here based on my own kind of knowledge of like politics and warfare, but like beating Bukok is a definitive statement. Like Bukok is the old lion, the final bastion of the FPA. Like if you beat, if you take Heinesen without beating Bukok, like there will always be this like lingering sentiment of like asterisk. Yeah, 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 you won, but you didn't really win. And like that will like, and, and, and as silly as a sentiment as that seems, that is actually a great way to breed like resentment and revolutionary thoughts in a populace. Like, what better way to convince the pot- the civilian populace to like rebel? They're like, yeah, what? He 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 didn't even beat Bukok. Like, we're still in the fight. But by beating Bukok definitively, by destroying his fleet, by definitively destroying the last fleet of the FPA, he can truly like brand into the FPA's like cultural mindset that we have been definitively broken. So. Yeah, you know, as much as I do kind of agree with Hill to hear that the rational choice is to like just you know, uh, literally go around them. <laughs> like, there are good reasons to have these kind of fights, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I get a quick bit of Bukok saying, uh, perhaps he was actually fortunate because in his life he got to see the two in- incomparably distinguished strategists, Reinhard Valdongram and Yang Wenli. Yes but uh, did not have to live to witness their eventual fall from grace. You know, and and will not have to live long enough to see uh, the, the total fall of the FBA. Yes, we have Chung. Well, that's that's Chung's uh, that's Chung's editorialization of him saying, you know, yes. Also, we'll die before we w- we witness the the true, definitive, and final extinction of the Free Planets Alliance, which really just kind of yep. lays it there out lays it out there for you that like. This has been a long time coming. We have seen this, like, we have arguably, arguably, we have seen this coming since Armlitzer, but, mm-hmm. uh, this is it for the FPA. And, uh, so the battle begins. Uh, it begins with, uh, yeah. the, the less experienced admirals, Napstein and Grillpauser, kind of tasked with, uh, the first push into, uh, into Bukok's fleet. Yeah. Reinhardt is literally like, this is probably a trap. And but uh, Ryanthal says yes, but <laughs> basically send in the young young blood, yes, so we can get a, get an idea of the enemy. Yes, I mean it's callous, but look, this is an entirely legitimate strategy. Like you have yeah. to probe your enemy to see what they're capable of, and frankly, you're going to do that with people who are slightly more expendable. <laughs> so yep. Napstein and Gropals are pushing. Uh, kind of Bukok, basically, you know. Hard to do this without visuals, but but basically he retreats into the corridor, uh, one of the like open corridors of the uh, the Marendetta yeah. system to kind of like kind of funnel them into a bottleneck, which is already a solid strategy. But where this truly comes into play is that uh, Bukok has also uh, uh, analyzed and correctly timed, I guess, the like solar winds that occur in the Marendetta system. Right. So he kind of braces his fleet against some of the like floating asteroids. Uh, meanwhile, kind of uh, Napstein and Grillpauser get caught by the uh, the solar winds. 
Like some of them get hit by the stray rocks, but mostly what happens is that they get clustered up together, which allows mm-hmm. Bucock to kind of go on the offensive and just like, you know, shoot at the center. Yeah, just kind of pound the shit out of them for a bit. Um, so uh, yeah. they they're kind of forced to retreat. Uh, Grill Palser is pulled off uh, after taking like thirty percent casualties, which again against Bucock's twenty k fleet, that's pretty damn good. You know, that's. Mm-hmm. That's a solid. That's a solid hit, and you know, kind of a solid bloodying of the nose enough to remind everybody, especially these young bucks, who are like, "Yeah, let's just kill this old man." That like, uh, this old man has a lot of fight left in him. Yeah, um, there's a quick uh, scene here of Mittermeier watching from afar with his staff, and uh, basically saying that, that even if we gave them a chance, they wouldn't. The uh, FPA guy, that old man, wouldn't bend the knee. Yeah. And uh, one of his staff members is like, uh, anybody who does that wouldn't be worthy of our respect anyway. And Mittermeier is like, no, I, I get where you're coming from, but don't don't say that. Several several of the admirals have done so. Yes, yes. you know. And uh, do not denounce them. And I just love this. Yeah, I, I love this. Aside. It's like, oh, Mittermeier, you're so thoughtful. You are so mindful of others. This quick, this quick scene that shows that Mittermeier yeah. is still a, still a nice guy. Yeah, it just oh, he's so mindful about his words. What a what a good boy. But uh, but yes. Yeah, so you know, Reinhardt switches uh Fahrenheit switches out Grill Palser for Fahrenheit. He tasks and Fahrenheit Eisenach also. and Eisenach. Yes, yeah, so he tasks Fahrenheit. With uh, kind of going the long way around to uh, to go to the rear of the corridor to kind of uh, catch Pukok in a pincer attack, he sends Eisenach on a to go the extra long way around to uh, yeah. to 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 shore up a, another rear flank. Um, mm-hmm. And ah, then, but Pukok has some dudes in the back well, also to prevent this. Well, yes. Well, we don't know about that yet. Actually, uh, we we don't know about Carlson's fleet quite yet, but. Uh, uh, but once again, sends Napstein, uh, yes, Napstein in on the offensive to kind of like push into Bucock, hopefully to eventually push Bucock into Fahrenheit. But uh, Bucock right, has anticipated right. this and has set up a minefield in the corridor, uh, slowing right. down Napstein, forcing him to uh, to slowly Not, yeah. advance through the corridor. Yeah, cannot just charge straight in. Yes, and as a result, when Fahrenheit does show up, uh, Bucock is ready for it. Uh, Bucock basically and. Bucock basically anticipated that Fahrenheit would anticipate him, and uh, this is where uh, Carlson's fleet shown up in their flagship, yes. the Diomedes. Yes, Ralph Carlson and his flagship, the Diomedes. Yes, I've I have put together some notes here about why Diomedes is the secret best Greek hero. Yes, hero. I will let you have that a floor nobody, on this. That nobody, <laughs> that nobody talks about. He's a, he's a, like made major character in the Iliad. Diomedes is the best. Yes, it's like my seat, my my favorite. Yes, I mean, I mean, do tell me, regale me, like, why is Diomedes the best? <laughs> All right, well, uh, let's see here. So Diomedes, um, you know, a lot of the people who show up at the Trojan War are were like already major. Yeah, characters. yeah, you know, Punk some wrote. of those famous guys like Odysseus and and right. and and what's his fucking name, Aeneas. No. Sure. Aeneas is on the Troy side. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Achilles, my bad. What, what we're getting at is Diomedes, prior to, you know, in uh, Lost Epics taking place before the Trojan War. Yes, in the, the, in, the, the, in, the, in the Trojan War expanded yes. universe. <laughs> and the, the Theban cycle. Actually, this is more like in Oedipus 3, 
Yes, <laughs> please, please elaborate. Uh, he was part of the Epigoni, who are basically... So the Oedipus stuff involves a lot of the city of Thebes and Oedipus's sons ruled Thebes for a while and they ruled, they, they killed uh, the seven against Thebes. That's the dude had, who uh, had sex with his mom. Uh, yeah. And so his mess of kids, I guess. <laughs> and so the, the, the children of the seven against Thebes were called the Epigoni and they uh, went to war to reclaim the rightful rule of Thebes. And Diomedes is one of those. One of those guys, uh, that's that epic no longer exists. There's lost to time, but anyway, and he also uh, wanted to bang Helen of Troy, like a lot of them did, which <laughs> which led to which you know led to the whole pact of well, if anything happens to 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 uh, Menelaus's stuff, we'll all go to his defense, which caused the Trojan War. Yes, I... And so, uh, I, you, you know, know... Look, we can't we can't all have these kind of lofty-minded goals of conquering the Sea of Stars or defending democracy. Sometimes you go to war for right. much baser reasons. Indeed. And so, uh, Diomedes sailed off to the Trojan War. He sent the third highest number of ships out of all of them. First, the, the most highest was Agamemnon, who was, like, the commander-in-chief of the entire offensive. So, of course, you have the most... Second highest was Nestor, who was like the weird old war vet, one that used to be on the Argo, one of the Argonauts. He's Nestor's main role in the entire Iliad is like people come to him for advice and he gives them advice, but only after talking for like two hours about his cool adventures. <laughs> That's like, pretty good. Well, you see, when I was when I was young, this is what I did in this situation, so this is what you should do. Yes, that's um, that's, that's, that's great. But yeah, due to Diomedes' off-screen adventures, he had the most raw battle experience of any of the Greek kings sent to the Trojan War, and he was also the youngest. Uh, he was the second strongest warrior after Achilles, and he was the only other warrior besides Achilles who had armor forged by Hephaestus himself, god of the forge. Also, he had a shield blessed by Athena that could throw fire. <laughs> well, shit, all right, that's... Just had a flamethrower shield. Yeah, that's not bad. That's pretty useful. But yeah, he's like basically the only... He's like the coolest head of all the Greeks. He never gets pissy. He's just always like... Like Agamemnon insults him once, saying like, oh, you're not being brave enough or whatever. And people are like, man, Diomedes, you're just going to take that? And he's like, ah, no, it's Agamemnon's job to uh, rile up his troops. And, you know, a baser man would perhaps get mad at such such jobs but he's just doing his job yeah that diomedes guy sounds all yeah. right you know Allo i think allowing allowing his commander to save face while also yes. protecting his own honor sure yeah i mean i think i think what you're getting at here is that diomedes was a cool dude not just because like he got a billion kills and a cool shield but he was also a cool dude because he was a genuinely cool guy let me let me, let me talk to you about some of those martial exploits yeah on on the battlefield please do uh, there's a particularly notable incident where uh, he meets Aeneas on the battlefield. Yes. Aeneas, who is, uh, was written about later by Virgil in the, the Aeneid, which is about how Aeneas, after the Trojan War, went on to do a bunch of stuff and found Rome, or, you know, begat, or... Uh, what eventually becomes Rome. Sire the people who would found Rome. Yes. Uh, and so Diomedes beats the shit out of Aeneas on the battlefield, and Aeneas is like, Mom! Come help me out. <laughs> and his mother is Aphrodite. Um, so she comes down to the battlefield and uh, Diomedes, who has been assured by Athena 
to not fear any mortal cuts up cuts up Aphrodite. <laughs> so Aphrodite is like, man, screw this guy. She runs back to Olympus and is like, hey, Ares, go beat up this dude who cut, cut me. <laughs> so Ares goes down to the battlefield. Diomedes fucking throws a spear and gets Ares. <laughs> the god of war. Ares ain't shit. Yeah. <laughs> and Ares is like, ah, goes back to Olympus. It's like, Zeus. <laughs> come on and Zeus is like quit being such a fucking baby <laughs> oh man so Diomedes is the only mortal who ever wounded two Olympians in a single day that's that's really good that's that's very I'm yeah I'm glad I'm glad that Legend of Galactic Heroes finally gave you your opportunity to kind of share uh you know your area of expertise you know yeah, mythology and the the, the, the vague Vague expertise. Yeah, the the Trojan War expanded universe. I do love. I do, well, look. I do love the way you talk about it. As in, like, well, Diomedes was was in this earlier event, but we lost the issues to that. So you got to think of this as like he's here in this crossover event called the Trojan War, but he, he right. is an established you know, like, character. You know, Diomedes will return in in the in the Iliad. Yeah, um, I, I love that. I love that, and I love that. Like, no, he's a. He's a cool guy, you know, not just because he kicks a lot of shit, but like he's he's a he's a decent dude as well, which yeah. I feel like is kind of a rare quality in Greek myth. Uh, I am not right. as versed in Greek myth, but my understanding is that most of the dudes in Greek myth, I mean, you know, look, morality is a subjective thing. It, you know, it, yes. it changes from era to era. Look, as a fan of the romance of the three kingdoms, <laughs> let me tell you about ancient morality. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, uh, you know it's always kind of fun to find those characters that are like kind of relatable, even all these years later, you yeah. know, kind of upholding like, you know, what we would consider objective moral goods, even if they're not actually, actually, you know, truly objective. You know, I think uh, like, you know, as far, as far as I remember, like Diomedes and Hector are basically like the only two kind of decent people in the Trojan I mean, War. And Hector eats it. Well, I mean, tr- um, I mean, Hector fucking eats it in the worst way. Like, right. I, I sometimes <laughs> wonder. And Hector on you know, the battlefield multiple times. Diomedes wins every time. Yeah. And then, like, always told right before the killing blow, "Hey, the Iliad's supposed to be about Achilles. Chill out a little." You're being too cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, oh, all right. I, right. I don't mean to turn this into the oh the God. the Greek mythology podcast, but I've always tried to. I've always struggled with Hector. Is like, is Hector's fate supposed to be tragic, or is Hector's fate supposed to be? Considered, oh yeah, that's what we, that, that that is what you would do in a in like according to like Greek masculinity and mythology. Like <laughs> the right thing to do would be to fucking the, the, kill this man and humiliate his corpse in front of like oh, his loyal is, troops. Like right. Like, I mean, I think his ultimate fate is meant to, like, be, being dragged around is a, a dishonor. Right, right. Like, so it's supposed to construe Achilles as dishonorable, even though, like, he is also intended to be its title character. And I guess I've always, like, str- right. struggled with, like, what were the original, you know, the original writers anyway. or whatever's intentions. But anyways, who knows? point anyways. is... yeah. Hermes was an alright guy at the end of the Trojan War yes, when Poseidon scattered everyone and made Odysseus have to go on his odyssey. Yes. Dimes just went home. Yes, and so Ralph Carlson perhaps might not live <laughs> up to the legend of Diomedes, but he put the good effort in here. He charges out from like literally behind a giant rock and uh catches Fahrenheit in a pincer yeah. formation, kind of fucks up Fahrenheit for right. a bit. 
Because Bukak uh, knows his back is covered by the mines, yes. and he can pincer Fahrenheit. And some in, something interesting happens here, and it's kind of hard to describe verbally, you know. But if you're listening to this, you've watched this. Carlson's fleet, the Diomedes, pushes through Achilles. I mean, not Achilles, <laughs> through Fahrenheit's fleet, uh-huh. and pushes through the into the side flank where Mueller has been assigned to. Because Mueller has been assigned to protect the fl- the flank that is uh, protecting Reinhardt, yeah. Because if Carlson manages to push push past Fahrenheit, he pushes into Mueller. This all of a sudden creates a very interesting, very hectic situation where all of a sudden the outcome of this battle suddenly gets a lot murky, right? Because Fahrenheit now realizing what's happened, he cannot stay and fight with Bukok. He has to chase after Carlson. Because mm-hmm. Carlson, Carlson's going for Reinhardt. Yes, and to do that, he needs to push through Mueller. And so Mueller also cannot turn around to fight Fahrenheit. Because if he ever stops, like he loses the momentum. So now he's mm-hmm. caught in an interesting situation where he must push through Mueller at all costs. With Fahrenheit behind him, who must also push through <laughs> at all costs. And then you have Bukok behind Fahrenheit, right. who must also now push into Fahrenheit, or else Carlson's fleet will be lost. All the while, Napstein is still like dealing with the minefield, right? Because they have set up even more that were on a time delay. Yes, and to like really bog him and, down. And as we find in episode seventy-two, that Bukok is tragically unaware of, but Eisenach is also still in play. He is taking right. the very long road around. Eisenach, who still refuses to speak. Yes, and that's how episode seventy-one ends. And in like a surprisingly chaotic battle, or whatever. yeah, and I I really like this. I really love this battle. Like I love the Yangwen Lee battles, but like I think I think Bukok has actually been the leader of some of my favorite fights in this show because it kind of shows a, perhaps a more grounded take on like what good tactics and strategies look like. More like I mean, like Yangwen Lee has always come with these crazy plots, but Bukok is. Like a direct military commander. Yes. Bukok is an extremely solid admiral. Like in any other era, in any other like war in real life history, Bukok would be considered a soluble, solid, reliable admiral. Like it, the only thing you could ever hold against Bukok is that he consistently fights for the losing side. But like mm-hmm. his tactics and his strategy are extremely solid here. And not only that, but he shows good initiative here to take advantage of a situation that. It's hard to tell if Bukok was banking on this. Like, I think Bukok always knew on some level the only way to win this battle is if we can kill Reinhardt. Yeah. But the way it happens is a little bit more spontaneous than I think a lot of admirals would like to deal with. But I think I've stated this in the past, right? Where, like, there's an old saying that, like, the most well-laid plans, like, like, fall apart, you know, upon first contact with the enemy. Like, yeah, yeah. No plan, no, oh, sorry, it's no plan survives first contact with the enemy because the minute you run into your enemy, they, they are almost inevitably, inevitably going to start doing things you don't bank on. Like, even if you've run like six different calculations of what they might do, they might do one of them, but like in a weird permutation you didn't quite expect. And like, this applies to both Bukok and the Empire fleet. Like, we see this constant back and forth. Like, Neither side is stupid here. Yes, you have your like less experienced admirals like 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 I like uh, 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 Grill Pauser and Navstein, but like people are operating on the logic of the information they have available to them. Like mm-hmm. as we find in episode seventy two, would Bukok do something differently if he knew about Eisenach? It's it's hard to say, but 
Based on the also, information, he just doesn't have the numbers. Also, that's either. like he doesn't have the numbers, right? Like I think we'll kind of get into this more once the battle's done, and we'll kind of do our post-game commentary on the battle uh-huh. as a whole. But like, there's a lot about this battle that is like as much like the good tactics of its individual like combatants as it is kind of a greater statement to like the lopsided strategic situation of the of both sides, mm-hmm. and. Despite that, though, despite those okay, seemingly so, like oh, one, one second, I'm sorry. Yes. So strategy is like the broader scale of the war, right? And ta- tactics is the battle yes. level scale. To, yes. So to kind of like give a very quick summary of it, strategy is saying that if I want to take A, if I want to capture A to win the war, I need to take B and C. Tactics is specifically the ways you take B and C if that makes sense. Like, like strategy is the grander, is the grander scheme of like, how do I align my resources and the people under my command to like, get the maximum, like, like potential and worth out of them as assets in this war. Tactics is like man to man fight, like actual fight to fight. How do I win these fights to serve the greater goal of my grander strategy. Strategy is the macro, tactics is the micro. Yes, yes. So, you know, I'll just say like really quickly here, anybody who's watched Legend of the Galactic Heroes can tell, Reinhardt has definitively won the overall strategy game, resource-wise, manpower-wise, positioning-wise. Like, Mm. but despite all of those advantages... The reason why tactics are so important and why to some degree sometimes, and I don't quite agree with this, but why tactics are sometimes lionized more than strategy is because once you get down to the, t- to the tactics, things get a lot murkier. Things get a and lot your big, your big dramatic push in is a lot sexier than I had better supply lines. Right, right. You know, I think I've said it time and time again, logistics win war- wins wars. And I mean that's what we're gonna that's what we see here in the overall scheme. But yes, it is a matter of accountability. Um, but uh, everybody should read the manga Guns and Stamps. Uh, if you like Legend, you know, if you like Legend of the Galactic Heroes, I think it's a it's a it's a much lighter uh, piece of material, you know, tone wise. But I think I think you would have something to appreciate from the manga uh, Guns and Stamps. Uh, but I'll just leave it at that. We have gone on way too many tangents in this podcast already. Uh, but but yes, you know, kind of to touch on it briefly, I'd, I'd rather spend most of you know this on the our, our post game commentary. But right. Reinhardt has definitively won the strategy game. He has more men. He has more f- fleets. He has more time. He has more everything. The positioning, the, the entire positioning of this war is in his favor because he has done the work. He has laid down the groundwork, and he's not just not just he himself. He has laid down the foundational like infrastructure to ensure that like his operation runs better than the FPAs. But the reason why this battle could still be interesting is because once you actually get down to the actual fighting, things aren't always set in stone. Yes, you can have a you you can outnumber your opponent ten to one. You can. You can have the right terrain, you can have the right plans, you can have the best generals, but like, battles are messy, battles are chaotic, and oftentimes, the best generals aren't the ones who actually lay down the best plans, but are the ones who adapt the best to the information and material they have available to them, and... Mm -hmm. 
I think it's great that episode 71 kind of ends with the ends on that tone because even, you know, despite the direction 72 eventually takes, I like that 71 reminds us, look like, yes, of course, Reinhardt has the sheer advantage here, but like things are, things are not obvious, you know, during, in the out, in the moment, in the moments. And uh, yeah, so with that, we should probably just roll right into seventy-two. Um, right. I mean, Dukak's being hammered, and so but they have to—they're still pushing in to penetrate in. Yes, to get Reinhardt. Yes, so they are—they're getting kind of hammered up. from all sides. Yes, turns out that uh, Carlson no. does manage to pull push through uh, Mueller's fleet, but Eisenach has shown up and attacks Bukak's oh. rear. Myers coming in. Yes. So basically, basically the FPA fleet is getting hammered by all sides. Um, they 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 went for a very daring push, and it's beginning to become apparent that it's maybe not going to be able to hold up. Uh, we have Bukok. We see Bukok here with Chung. Uh, turns out that even in even at this point in the battle, they kind of are banking on the Mar Adetta Solar Winds, which yeah seem to help a little bit because they do allow Bukok to. Um, to take a conical formation and kind of also managed to push through uh, Mueller's fleet into Reinhardt's fleet along yeah. with Carlson. And it's a desperate charge. And eventually, you know, and some, some more ships are coming in. Yes. Get the freaking like freaking anime. Yes. Yes. The, like, the multiple faces yes. of everyone going. <gasps> Gasp! Gasp! And who is it other than our friend Bittenfield and the Black Lancers uh, uh, <laughs> showing up? Showing up late as Bittenfield is wont to do. Like, uh, ha time to kill them all! Right, Bittenfield's like, ha it's time for us to claim the glory. It's like, dude, uh, you showed up late. <laughs> I do like there's a bigger of Royenthal's like, no, be careful. Like, Bukog might still have a, a trick lineup, right, yeah. but Reinhardt says like. Now let him. If, if, if it wouldn't be Bittenfield if he didn't just fucking charge right in, right? Like it wouldn't be Bittenfield if he didn't act like Bittenfield. So uh, mm-hmm. kind of charges in, and you kind of get the tone here that the it's still final nail in the coffin. Yes, yes, this is the the fate has been sealed for the FPA fleet. Uh, Carlson's fleet is getting picked apart. Uh, we have a great bit here where. Uh, Carlson on the Diomedes kind of laments the times, you know, that mm-hmm. because of his status, because of like his, like I guess, socioeconomic status, he could never afford to attend uh, Fleet Officer Academy, um, which is really like, if, for those of you not familiar with like military structure, really actually speaks to like how, like, despite how little we've seen of him, actually speaks to like how, like, how talented Carlson must actually be because that implies also, that Carlson rose to the ranks of officer from like the grunts. Like he had mm-hmm. to go all the way from the bottom. Like guys like Yang Wen Lee, like when you, when you attend officer Academy, you automatically start at like a certain rank, but like, you know, but you know, just kind of Carlson lamenting that also, but like on the other hand, I'm also, I'm also an officer leading a fleet because all the good men are already dead. So <laughs> Right, but uh, yeah, he was able to a, a schmuck like him was able to get this close to, yes, to the get Galactic Kaiser to get within swinging distance of Reinhard von Lohengrim and all he can. Yeah, and uh, Carlson's fleet uh, eventually it gets destroyed. 
Yep. Uh, and Peacock's fleet is rapidly diminishing. Yes, it's getting disintegrated. And uh, right. eventually, after, uh, I think they say they take 80% losses. Yeah, uh, he he uh, says permission, permission granted to withdraw from battle, should you choose? Yes. That uh, the battle is lost, that Bucock tried his best, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's just his best. His best wasn't good enough. Maybe not just because of him, but because of just, as we spoke to earlier, just all of the all of the things that are surrounding this battle. Yeah. Um, so uh, Hilda <laughs> walks to Reinhard and says, allow them to surrender. At least give them the opportunity. Although Reinhard's starting to push back. Oh, yeah. You know, he's yeah. like, why, why should I, the, the winner, pander to the loser? Right, there's a very, like, there's, there's a little bit of bratty Reinhardt here again, where, like, as much as Reinhardt talks lofty about, oh, I'll give the old man an honorable battle, like, he gets mm. really bratty sometimes when, like, you, ex- when, when exposed, and, yeah, he's just like, Ugh, why would I extend that? Like, 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 as much as he tries to, like, maintain the aura of this magnanimous golden emperor, like, Right. He is undeniably, like, you know, petty in some very real ways. I mean, it takes Hilda is smart and, you know, says yeah. allowing them that opportunity will show your magnanimity. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so we kind of have Bucock here where, like, a, a few ships also stayed behind, you know, to the bitter end. It's, uh... Mm-hmm. And so, Reinhardt eventually does, but he does it through Mittermeier, so... Meyer right. offers Bucock surrender, you know, blah, blah, blah. You'll be treated fairly, et cetera, et cetera. Bucock says that uh, he demands direct communication with Reinhardt, um, which is granted to him. And uh, yeah, we have a bit here where Chung starts breaking out the drinks with him and uh, the oh, yeah. captain of the uh, of the Rio Grande. Yep. Ralph Emerson. Yes. Think, and, uh, Emerson. Something like that. And uh Bucock gives, you know, as, good speech. as much as I love Yang's speeches about the lofty ideals of what democracy is and should be, I think, I think I've actually come to really love and appreciate Bucock's, uh, Bucock's defenses of democracy, you know, like mm-hmm. not even in that like old man folksy way, but just like the way he delivers it come like it speaks from a place of experience and like a more grounded like viewpoint of 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 life than like Yang's very high minded ideals and uh, right. Bukov gives a speech that like Reinhard, you're a you know you're a great guy. You know you are a legendary commander. You have thoroughly beat me. Like I I'd love to have a grandson just like you. Yes, <laughs> I have great. Yes, that bit there. Like if I had a grandson, I wish he was like you, but uh, I can never bend the knee. I could never be a servant because I believe I want to be friends with everybody. And I believe you can only be friends with your equals that a master and a servant as close as they might ever be can never truly be friends. And so I could never be your servant and I could never be your master. Like this one, that's why he must fight for democracy. Yes. This, like this, this core ideal of Bukok's like belief is why, is why he believes democracy is truly genuinely worth fighting and dying for. And, uh, kind of with that said, uh, Reinhardt, yes. Drink, toast to democracy. Yes. A toast to democracy. And then Reinhardt (laughs) orders the, 
absolute the final destruction of what remains Dude, of the like fleet. We get this quick montage of Kirky eyes. Yes, we you know we haven't seen Kirky eyes in a long yes. time. And, and, even flashback. Yes, we get a little bit of Brightheart's uh, mental state here. You know, uh, like this does show. I think that he was as at least contemplating his relationship with Kirky eyes. Yes, whether it was truly one of friends and equals or if. It was a master-servant relationship. Yes, yes. Reinhardt gets a little indignant at Bucock's statement. He's like, "Like, how could you ever understand? Like, I mean, it's it's a little, right. it's a little, it's a little flimsy." Was like, "You weren't raised in an autocratic environment. How could you ever understand the relationship between a master and servant?" And it's like, "Well, <laughs> it's not really that." Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it it brings up the question, at least, whether yes. To, to both in and out of context of the show, whether his relationship with Kirky Eyes was that of equals as friends or if it was a master-servant relationship. Right. And, like, I don't think any of us would ever deny that Reinhardt and Kirky Eyes were very close on a personal level. But I do like that they're at least willing to, like, remind us that, like, there will always be a tension in a master-servant relationship because there is a power dynamic. And, of course— yeah. and, and as a result, the relationship does kind of hinge on the magnanimity, the 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 magnanimous attitude of the one in power. Like the one who holds the power in a relationship, if he ever decides, he can decide to stop being friends. Like he can decide if he decides something, the other friend slash servant doesn't really have a say in the matter. I mean, look, I mean, turn in your turn in your sidearm, Kirky eyes. Right, exactly. Turning your sidearm, telling that to Kirky eyes, telling Kirky eyes to stand. Um, further away from him like true for i mean i'm not not gonna say not true friends i do think they were truly friends but equals could not say such things yang could not tell shen copper dusty uh stand further away from me like this isn't right like not that yang would ever do that but but yang could never even do that because like yes he is their superior in terms of like leadership but like as 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 men no as humans as individuals as the members of a democratic nation, they are equals. And like, that is, that is an ideal worth striving for. And, uh, you know, with that said, we, uh, yeah. Bucock and Chung kind of die with the Rio Grande here. Yep. And, uh, and, uh everybody salutes. Yes. Yes. Reinhardt and commands that all salute, um, the remnants of the battle as they pass through Maradetta. And, uh, you know, kind of, this was the last stand of the FPA. And I think in many ways, this battle really, I think it truly encapsulates, like, I think, I think this battle in many ways is a miniature encapsulation of the story of the late FPA, you know, like, Mm. I think the FPA, I think based on what we've seen in in these past 72 episodes, I think the FPA was actually full of very good individuals. I think the tragedy always has been that these individuals were just... They were never at the levels of authority that they deserved or at the levels of authority where they could have made, like, the necessary changes to, like, redirect the course of the FPA. And but also their ideals demanded that they not exactly exactly like yes thank you thank you for getting to that hero like but like yeah like the tragedy is also like they never could have as long as they were as long as they were like as long as they truly believed in democracy 
they also could have never gotten to that level of authority. And what does that say about democracy as as a political structure? You know, is that an indictment or is it just a, a a bittersweet weakness of a of a of a form of government that, like all all forms of government, is can be vulnerable to corruption and self serving individuals? You know, like I think. I think it's very easy for certain viewers of this show to very much look at Legend of the Galactic Heroes as like this black and white like veneration of autocracy and like this indictment of democracy as this like corrupt, limp-wristed like governmental structure. And I've always think that's kind of the like that is the the, the that is kind of the basic bitch take on Legend of the Galactic Heroes. I think that um I think that uh you know, unironically, the real galaxy brain take on this show has always been like both of these, both of the governments that we see in this show are 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 at their core made of people, and the structures of them both maybe have an effect on what those people can do, but at the end of the day, the things that truly matters to the long term like success and prosperity of those governments is the people themselves. And the tragedy of the FPA is simply that in this time in history, in this era, you know, they, they just had the wrong people in power. You know, they had yeah. the, the circumstances were just not in the cards and, uh, and, and you know what, that it'll happen time and time again. And at the end of the day, in theory, a democracy can't recover from that. And autocracy has a much harder time recovering from that. So, you know, as the pages of history turn, who can really say? Indeed. But, uh, uh, yes. What we can say is that <laughs> Emil von Sekla is still attending Reinhard. Yes. Yes. Uh, it's this all well good. We have, we, have, we, have, yeah. we have, yes, we have this scene, which is great because it's like very tender, nice, right? Hard being like, Oh, Emil von Sekla, you precocious kid, you know, thanks for the tea. I'm nice and relaxed. Mm-hmm. And then the narrator says, and then three hours later, Reinhardt received news of Yang Wenli's trickery <laughs> and recapture of alone. I forgot to, yeah, I did forget to forget to fetch it earlier when they're talking about Yang Wenli and then they're like, Oh, even if Yang Wenli takes Fazan, we'll still be able to leave through Ezer alone. Ha yes. ha, he has no recourse open to him. Right, right. So they, do, they do briefly mention, like, like, like uh, Reinhardt at least entertains, how do we know Yang Wenli's not on his way, just like in the battle of uh, uh, Barrio, right? And, mm-hmm. like, Reinhardt's like, eh, I'm not too worried. Yang's logical choice would be to uh, capture Fazan behind me to cut me off, but... <laughs> It wouldn't no matter. That. <laughs> right. So, what and so the actual like, news is is he took Ezerlone again, again, less than a year after Reinhardt captured. Reinhardt is very mad. He tosses his wine glass on the ground. He ah, is what is a man? Not pleased. Um, you know, Lutz returns, kind of tail <laughs> between his legs. Yeah. I'm really sorry. <laughs> Uh, right. Reinthal is pulling on his collar a little bit. Um, it's not Reinthal's fault. <laughs> no, no, but they say that the unspoken sentiment in right. the room is that, well, it's kind of Reinthal's fault that he didn't catch uh, Yang Wen Li's back door. Right. Like, you know, he he, felt, the- he caught the bombs and thought that was it. So, mm-hmm. 
All the admirals kind of argue over whether this really affects their plans, whether they've been tricked by a joint effort. And uh, Binfield, uh, well, before that, Binfield, as always, is the hype man, where he's just like, ah, who cares? It doesn't matter. We'll just kick his ass. <laughs> it's just like, Binfield, please. Calm down, sir. But yes, Hilda. Hilda. The smartest, the smartest person in this entire yes, show. Hilda is becoming, I hate to say, she's becoming annoyingly smart for me. Like, because I feel like if Hilda were not here, like, the thing... We would have beaten Reinhardt a long time ago. Yes, yeah, there are so many things Yang Wenli could have pulled pulled off without Hilda just being like, actually, I've already figured out what Yang Wenli's going to do. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, and so she basically says, uh, this is by chance. Like, Yang didn't plan this. In fact, losing uh, Admiral Bucock is a huge blow to Yang Wenli. Right, like if this if if Yang's plan if Yang was actually collaborating with Bucock, they would have never like allowed him to die. Like that is too he is too valuable of a piece for for Yang to to throw away on on just like recapturing Izzerlone. But mm-hmm. uh, despite that, yeah. at the end of the day, Yang Wenli is sitting pretty on Izzerlone, and Reinhardt is not. And uh, <laughs> Minermeyer says, we have no fear of traveling 100,000 light years for war, but we fear the name of Yang Wenli. Yes, yes, that the whole the whole of the Galactic Empire might simply exist to be a foil for Yang Wenli. When <laughs> we add like three or four to the if Kirky Eyes were here counter. Yes, yes, Reinthal breaking out the if Kirky Eyes were alive. Um we would never block these alone like this. It's like motherfucker of Kirk guys were alive. This entire situation wouldn't even resemble the current right. one. Like I'm saying, if Kirk guys were alive, Oberson would never be in charge. Yes, yes. We. Like, I'm glad that they are still remembering. Oh, by the way, we haven't heard from Oberstein in a while. That dude's up to some shady shit. I want to see uh, Oberstein versus Becklanger back on Odin. And uh, they they speak to well one way or another. We're gonna have to deal with Yang Wenli's militaristic magic. So uh, add that to uh, magician. Add magician, that. A magician, magician. Yes, yes. Um, and uh, with that said, uh, Reinhardt is pretty pissed, but uh, Hilda once again advises Reinhardt to kind of take it slow. Like once again, Reinhardt, let me remind you, he's in Izzard alone. We don't have to fight him right now. Like, oh, let's just go to Heineson. Not really a bearing on our current goals, right? Like Yang. Like in many ways, it, of course, Yang only capturing Izzard alone is a huge blow to us. But at the same time, it has no bearing on our current trajectory. And so, with that, concludes uh, episode seventy-two of yeah. Legend of the Light. Uh, oof. Shows a lot. This this was a really great trio of episodes. Yeah, think, uh, we 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 have we haven't had a lot of like battles lately, so I'm glad we kind of we're kind of getting back to back into it. You mm-hmm. know, kind of really shows that like Legend of the Galactic Heroes. We say it time and time again. It's just a show that is that 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 displays mastery in so many like myriad ways of like mm-hmm. and so many myriad lanes of fiction. Like the politics, the dialogue, the characters, uh, even the action and the battles and the tactics. Like it's, it's also just unbelievably well thought out. And even here, like where we're like laughing about like, you know, Mashengo throwing pillars at dudes. We're also kind of lamenting like, you know, 
Bukok's fate and the eventual like fate of the FPA. It's it's a show that manages to juggle so many different uh, elements so effectively. Um, yeah. If you'll allow me, right here at the very end, since uh, we're kind of going to get into our post post battle commentary of uh, oh Maradetta. You know, like people listening probably like you know could probably accuse me of being maybe slightly more biased towards the fpa sorry guys i just kind of inherently are like (laughs) spoiler like sorry that offends you i just inherently believe in a liberal democracy more than you know a fascist autocracy (laughs) but i I truly do think that like you know for better or worse i think bukok acquitted himself well in this battle like based on the materials he had available to him based on the information the information he had available to him he truly did the best with the resources he had and in many ways this battle was basically won before the battle even started you know all the way back to Bukok only have 20,000 ships to the FPA fleet being annihilated in all the previous poorly timed and poorly thought out wars like like it, it, you know like in many ways, like this battle, like was important, but in many ways, this battle was just the culmination of a very long death spiral for the FPA that's been occurring since season one. And and so that's why I kind of thought about like Bukok's final charge and why, like, you know, I think I think a lot of people are like, why the fuck would you make such a like desperate charge when you're like so thoroughly outnumbered? And you know, I think I think it's. It, it, it is the fascinating thing about charges in battle. Um, like, why would you ever charge? Like, like charging as a concept in battle is an off is an often debated thing because, quite frankly, charges don't actually succeed most of the time, <laughs> but they do succeed often enough. And, and often to such like extreme degrees that they are off they are they are still considered like it is a high risk high reward tactical maneuver and when you're in a situation like Bukok's, like high risk high reward is the only option you can take um kind of to kind of to tie this to uh to, to something to kind of like explain like why i think charges do have their importance in battles like i uh rely on my, my other expertise in history the civil war and uh, I'd like you all to go back to the 1860s. Picture, picture yourself at Gettysburg. Um, and the reason for this is, uh, I mean, a lot of people talk about Pickett's Charge, but the charge I'm actually going to talk about is uh, the charge of the 20th uh, Maine Volunteer Infantry Regiment. Um, the 20th Maine was... Uh... Oh, wait, no, I'm not thinking of the 20th Maine. My bad. I'm getting this mixed up. My bad, my bad. Ah, yes, okay, the first Minnesota. My bad. There were lots of charges at Gettysburg. Some of them worked, some of them, eh. Mm. The first Minnesota, okay, the first Minnesota Volunteer Infantry Regiment was tasked with buying time so that the rest of the Union Army could set up and position on Cemetery Ridge. For those unfamiliar with the Battle of Gettysburg, um, Cemetery Ridge kind of formed the central backbone of the Union formation during this battle, and was arguably one of the most important positions in the Union Army. However, the Confederates were uh, making, were rushing to push them out of that position to set themselves up in a more advantageous position. Uh, the first Minnesota, consi- consisting of 260 men, were uh, tasked with holding out long enough against the, the uh, Confederate Army to uh, allow the rest of the Union Army to reposition themselves. So 
the first Minnesota ordered to fix bayonets and charge the Confederate army. Stick those axes on the backs of your yes. on the of your rifles and uh... um, of those two hundred and sixty, forty survived and returned. Ugh. Um, they were almost completely destroyed. In fact, the first charge, the charge of the first Minnesota, is a uh, the uh, greatest casualty rate of any single uh, military operation committed by a U.S. military uh, force. Hmm. Um, however, the five minutes they bought with that charge allowed the rest of the Union Army to set up at Cemetery Ridge and uh, arguably kind of turn the tide of that entire battle. And uh, I think it kind of speaks... And <laughs> the reason why I bring that up, other than my love of Civil War history, is that Bucock wasn't exactly in the same situation, but it kind of speaks to, speaks to this idea of, like, what could Bucock have done if he had just... Like Yangi often says, if I only had 20,000 more men, no t- or ships, no 10,000, 5,000, even 1,000 more ships. Like, how much of Bucock's loss in this battle is predicated on the fact that there simply were no ships left? That from the onset, this fight could never have been truly won just because, like, he didn't have that, like... He didn't have that extra flank or that extra, like, you know, division of ships. And it kind of speaks to this idea that, like, charges are often foolhardy and suicidal, but and often they do come from a bad place. They come from bad tactics and outdated thinking and, and, and false bravado. But oftentimes they also come from a place of genuine desperation. And, you know, sometimes they are, in fact, the only... Sometimes they are, in fact, the only viable tactic you have left. So, yeah, you know, I, I hope that people would look to Bucock's final charge as not some sort of a bullheaded suicidal move, but more the the, the final gambit of an army that otherwise had uh, no other viable chance. And uh, kind of with that said, uh, rest in peace, Bucock. You know, you will be missed. Rest in peace, Chuck. We'll always remember you shouting Andrew Fork into a coma. Yes. We'll always always remember your sandwiches, Chuck. Yes, yes. You know, it's just the FBA is the story of losing too many good men to deeply tragic and unnecessary causes. Um, I'm really, I'm really actually, I'm like, like Bucock, I'm I'm really sad about because I feel like Bucock was honestly one of the best characters in this show. Yeah. in some oh. ways, I'm, I'm actually more regretful about Chung because I feel like Chung never truly got to like explore his narrative potential. Like, yeah, I feel like the FPA is the story of men and women who don't get to explore their full narrative potential because they are cut short by the circumstances they live in. You mm-hmm. know, like, of course, we'll always go back to Jessica Edwards and just imagine what she could have done for, yeah, mess. You know, think of a. Uh, you know, think of Chung, what he could have done, you know, for, uh, you know, imagine if Chung had, if Bukok had ordered Chung to, to leave and, 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 and team up with, with, with Yang, you know, it's, yeah. it's bizarre. It's bizarre when you actually think about the fact that Chung and Yang have actually never met face to face. It's mm-hmm. despite the like gigantic effect that Chung actually had on, had on Yang Wen Lee back in season two. Um, 
hell, you know. I mean, I'll still, I'll still even, I'll, I'll still even name drop Labello as a tragedy, you know, like, <laughs> like a, a once good man destroyed by the circumstances of his time, and uh, hell, you know, even the lesser known names, guys like Carlson and stuff. Like, how many, how many good individuals? How many, how many, like, how many Mittermeiers and Roenthal's and Mecklingers and Lutzes and Wallens do there exist in the FPA that just? Never got their chance because the, the the circumstances of their time just never allowed it. Who can say? Well, perhaps we'll get a bunch of them cropping up after the FBA's collapse when we need something else to go against the Empire. Yes, yes. We. I, I don't mean this. We're already you know at our roughly around our usual end time, so. I don't want to get too deep into the speculation, but I, I am very curious where things go from here because not just because of the young stuff, but also like what what is the fate of the FPA? Like, you know, yeah. the FPA is destroyed a full forty episodes before this show's even, this show's conclusion. Like, where does this all end up then? Like, is it already inevitable that Reinhardt conquers the universe? And then if so, is if so, then is all the struggle just about like asking the question of if Yang's valiant struggle is even worth it? Like, like is there is there is there worth to struggling against an inevitable tide? Like, if Reinhardt's fate is already in, is already sealed, if he is already fated, again, like Mashenko says, man cannot go against his fate. If Reinhardt is already fated to conquer the universe, then. What is not necessarily what is the point, but then what is it that Legend of the Galactic Heroes? What is that? Sh- what is it the story is interested in showing us about the process? Like, yeah. like wh- wh- whether that's like the human cost of like, like what does it cost Reinhardt to conquer the universe? I because we've already seen what it costs the FPA, you know, and I mm-hmm. think we're eventually going to see what it costs Siang. But you know, what does it cost Reinhardt, and what does it cost the universe? And because like. I, I guess I don't I don't know if I'd be that satisfied if the show just literally ends with and then Reinhardt conquered the galaxy, the end. Like <laughs> I think the show's more nuanced to just do that, just do just that. Well um, that's the thing is that I think that Legend of the Galactic Heroes might still do that. I think it'll just do that with like the nuance. Oh and, yeah, yeah. I mean that's that, what I'm saying. That only this goddamn story could ever be capable of. You know, it, it really speaks to this idea that like a lesser anime that ended like this, ended like that, I'd be like, man, fuck that shit. But Legend of the Galactic Heroes? Turns out you can put in a lot more legwork when you have 110 episodes. Indeed. And I guess we'll find out yes, in the future. We'll we will find out. We will find out in the uh, remaining uh, 108 episodes, not 100, uh, 48 episodes or so we have Jesus remaining. God. Yeah, duh, we're on episode seventy-two. That sounds like a big uh, number. The fact is, like, we're we're like we're, we've been talking about. Oh yeah, we're fifty percent through. My guy, we're still only like sixty percent through. Like, <laughs> like there's a lot of show left. It's kind of ridiculous. Uh-huh. And you know, again, we we still got all the guy den left. You know, so <laughs> saying that. What? Do you not want to watch Legend of Galactic Heroes Guy Dead? Don't announce anything before we're ready. We we have to watch Guy Dead, right? Like uh, some of the commenters have told us that Guy Dead is a lot more of like empire bullshittery, which I both am kind of. And we're gonna figure out how it's keeping. Um, but also, all right, fine, fine, fine. So you can listen to 
this podcast and all of our other podcasts and all of our other written content at thegloriablog.com. You can follow us at thegloriablog on Twitter. Uh, you can listen to the podcast on Spotify, Podbean, Google Play, and everywhere else that uh, podcasts are bought and sold. Watch Legend watch- of the Galactic Heroes on High Dive and VRV. Yes, thank you. And um, I think, uh, you know, we'll just name drop them, even though it's getting longer and longer. You can listen, if you want to like listen to us kind of chat about anime and anime news that's kind of happening recently, you can listen to the Glorio chat. The most recent uh, episode as of this one is a preview of the upcoming summer 2019 season. Yes, which I think includes the uh, the DNT movie, which I don't think we mentioned in the podcast, so... We didn't know really, too, we're, we're talking about movies. Really. Yeah, but I'm just saying, I, I, I relish every fucking excuse we get to name drop Legend of the Galactic Heroes and other podcasts <laughs> uh-huh. as as much it's much to the consternation of other people in that podcast, you included. Um, if you want to listen to us talk about um, giant robots instead of politics, um, there is a Neon Genesis Evangelio, our Neon Genesis Evangelion recap podcast, yes. where we kind of discuss the themes of that show, kind of what I'm getting out of it as a first-time watcher, what Eero and Jill are getting out of it on a rewatch. We also mm-hmm. uh, discussed in a recent episode about the Netflix stuff. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, it's been a bit of a contentious thing. Maybe not as contentious as we personally think, but it is the discussion I think is worth having. Uh, if you want to uh, argue, uh, if you want to listen to people arguing about uh, kaiju power levels, uh, yes. there is a uh, was Rise of the Monsters. Chris and Collins are on Gloria's King of the Kaiju. Oh, King of the Kaiju, not Rise of the Monsters. Why the fuck did I think that? But uh, I must be thinking of something entirely different. They watched the first episode, they watched Gamera, and in the second episode, they're going to watch Rodan. Yes, yes. They they think they want to do that one monthly, so, you know, a little slower, but, you know, that just gives them more time to really come up with that hard-hitting kaiju discourse. And uh, I think that's everything. So, um... As always, uh, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, Eero, as always, thank you for accompanying me on this journey. Thank you. I, uh, I could not do this without you. And uh, to the rest of you guys, we will see you next time amongst the Sea of Stars. 